Section 38 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 4. Chapter 3. Napoleon. Part 4. Talleyrand had time to indoctrinate an apt pupil before he met with a richly earned disgrace. In 1809, Napoleon's mother, shrewd and suspicious as are the unlearned women of the South, surprised the secret intrigue of Talleyrand and Fouché, their carefully hidden colloquies in a friend's country house at Suresnes, and she herself heard Fouché say that phrase we have quoted, c'est ton insensé, il faut en finir. She warned her son. In six days Napoleon came posting back from Spain, dashed across France to Paris, sent Talleyrand to the right about, depriving him of his charge of Grand Chamberlain. He kept Fouché indispensable as head of the police, but he kept him under watch and ward. This was in 1810. The times were troubled. Napoleon seemed possessed by a feverish, reckless desire to strain his fortunes to the utmost. The sovereigns of Europe found him an impossible neighbor. We have seen how in 1804 he carried off the Duke of Enghien, shot him, violating the territory of the Duke of Baden, with whom he was on terms of peace. In 1805 he abducted the English minister at Hamburg and carried him off to Paris, him and his papers. This was no matter of a mere Rhenish Margrave and a French émigré. It concerned the plenipotentiary of a great power living under the protection of the German emperor. In 1809 he seized upon the Pope, swooped down upon the Holy Father in his quiet Quirinal, drove him away under military escort to a prison, first at Grenoble, then at Savona, finally in 1811 at Fontainebleau. But of all his abductions, his sequestrations, none was so extraordinary as his retention in 1808 of the whole royal family of Spain. Here Napoleon shows himself completely the brigand chief. His prisoners were not interesting. Never had the peninsula sunk so low in point of prosperity, power or influence as under the rule of charles the fourth the bourbon king and queen were like an odious caricature of louis the sixteenth and marie antoinette he kind and loyal but almost imbecile incapable of any activity of body or mind and hypnotized by his blind devotion to his wife she arrogant energetic dissolute with only one thought in her head the advancement and good pleasure of her minister and favorite, the handsome parvenu Godoy, whom she had created Prince of Peace. Godoy was the tyrant of Spain, hated by the nation. The king's eldest son, Ferdinand, Prince of the Asturias, rose in arms against the monstrous regimen of his mother and Godoy. The old king, bewildered, abdicated one day, recalled his abdication the next, and watched his kingdom drift into civil war. Then Napoleon invited the king, the queen, the prince of the Asturias, and the prince of peace, who had all appealed to his decision, to meet him on the frontiers of France and Spain. His mastermind would cut the Gordian knot of a family quarrel. Too angry with each other to suspect this benevolent foreigner, 
the king the queen the two princes all talking at once and very excited arrived at the rendezvous napoleon gave them the wisest the kindest advice pacified the two rival kings induced prince ferdinand to abdicate in favour of his father persuaded king charles in his turn to abdicate in favour of napoleon and finally himself passed on the crown to his elder brother joseph bonaparte king of naples whose throne which this preferment left empty would come in handy for murat who had married caroline bonaparte when the despoiled bewildered bourbon would fain have turned their faces home they found the frontiers closed princely pleasure-houses ample incomes had been provided for them all in france but there they must remain while in their stead joseph bonaparte should cross the pyrenees fontainebleau chambord valencay compiegne were set at their disposal but they were captives prince of peace and all in vain they protested spain rose in victorious insurrection all her factions at once fused to an indignant unity at this insult to her national honour in vain europe lifted hands of horror and england sent an expeditionary force to portugal and spain under a new young general wellington napoleon was not disturbed for some time he had been anxious about his western frontier the empire appeared lopsided in its immense development its eastern extent was now prodigious hamburg was the chelieu of the french department of the elbe rome the capital of the department of the tiber but in the southwest the pyrenean boundary was but a few days march from paris it was a relief to behold spain at last practically absorbed into the empire napoleon wrote to his brother spain is quite another thing much better than naples it is a kingdom of eleven million inhabitants and a hundred and fifty millions of revenue which places you at three days journey from paris and covers entirely one of our frontiers napoleon was satisfied and yet that long that harassing peninsular war of independence was really the beginning of the end but he was much occupied in the north the alliance with russia had not proved durable the blockade which was intended to starve and ruin england had incidentally stifled russian trade that choice of an austrian princess had humiliated the enthusiastic alexander who had intended one of his own sisters to wear the french imperial crown and also napoleon would not listen to the muscovite dream of constantinople and the dardanelles he meant himself to be emperor of the east war broke out between the two allies in eighteen twelve here too as in spain napoleon made the mistake of underrating his adversary the constancy and courage of the spaniards in repelling a usurper had surprised the great man who esteemed them according to the supine indifference and shiftless idleness with which they had supported the yoke of the spanish bourbon neither could he guess that these inconsistent russians the children of europe lovable and puerile would show themselves capable of burning their capital and devastating their provinces in defence of their country napoleon like all the great men born of the revolution could understand no patriotism but his own with the result that this heir of the ideas of eighty nine 
will succumb to a series of popular and national movements subversive of that roman peace that implacable empire which he sought to impose on all the races of europe the french public was not informed of these new russian hostilities until some ten days after they had commenced the nation received the tidings with a calm that masked something of the sullenness of despair the wars had gone on for eleven years and there was still no end in sight my men would fight for ever said the emperor if they were not so fond of their families frenchmen are very fond of their families of their fields and farms their towns they like too to turn an honest penny to lay it by to spend it wisely in some solid acquisition to work like artists at their trades and to live sociably in a friendly society this ancient life of france was impossible during the long duration of the first empire in march eighteen twelve napoleon held his court in dresden it was perhaps the proudest moment of his life he stayed there all the spring and early summer the emperor of austria the king of prussia all the princes of the confederation of the rhine formed his following saxony westphalia came and bowed down before him bavaria was his washpot and over württemberg he cast his shoe every sovereign in europe except the sultan the russian emperor and the king of england was at his feet it was the greatest moment of my life he said on st helena on the twenty second of june he declared war on russia he was in too great a hurry he had learned at dresden that he would have the support neither of sweden nor of turkey he would have no allies in the north or on the east i was too hasty he owned i should have stayed a year on the niemen and first of all have made a meal of prussia instead of that he pursued his old victorious plan a dash a pounce a knockdown blow and he seats himself in the capital of the conquered enemy slashes with his sword a slice or two from the fattest part of their territory imposes himself as suzerain inclined to a pax romana all went at first according to promise napoleon crossed the niemen gained a victory at smolensk another on the moskowa and entered moscow in september but there instead of dictating terms and imposing conditions he found a novel state of things the russians as we know burned their ancient capital he encountered emptiness void desolation he was there like a man boxing with a moving shadow the very strength that he put out ensured his fall it is difficult to understand why napoleon should have lingered among the charred and blackened ruins of moscow until after the middle of october probably he hoped that alexander would capitulate our emperor thought the war was over wrote segur day by day he expected an answer from petersburg he nourished his hopes on his recollections of tilsit and erfurt was it likely he should have less influence over alexander at moscow and like all men who have long been lucky he expected his desires to come true but the master of the empty house still gave no sign of life and the climate surprised the conqueror by its mildness in his bulletin of the fourteenth of october he writes 
Le temps est encore beau, and even on the 27th, le temps est superbe, les chemins sont beaux, c'est le reste de l'automne. The Corsican could not dream how sudden, how fatal, might be the change of the equinox. While the old Russian Kulitsov smiled and said, We have an ally worth all of Bonaparte's. His name is General Winter. And Napoleon continues his letter. C'est le soleil et les belles journées de Fontainebleau. L'armée est dans un pays extrêmement riche qui peut se comparer au meilleur de la France. On the 7th of November there came a sudden frost, and on the 16th the thermometer marked 18 degrees centigrade below freezing point. The roads were covered with a slippery glaze of ice. The French and German horses of the cavalry, the artillery, the transport, perished by thousands every night. Thirty thousand of them in a few days, I am quoting Napoleon's bulletin, with the terrible result that the cannons, the wagons of munitions, all the commissariat stocks and stores, the provisions that accompany an army of six hundred thousand men, could no longer take the road and had to be destroyed, for the most part, in the midst of the wintry plains of Russia. That army, so fortunate and prosperous on the 6th of November, was ten days later, shorn of its cavalry, its artillery, its transport service, alike incapable of giving battle or of getting food. Between it and that frontier of the Neman, which they had passed so joyously in June, stretched fifty days of dreary marching in unimaginable snow and slippery ice, while the Cossacks viciously harried them on all sides. When the pursuit ended on the western frontier, more than three hundred thousand men of the Grand Army had disappeared. The dispatch which brought this terrible news to Paris on the 18th of December, 1812, concluded with these words intended to reassure and to console. His Majesty's health has never been better. It seemed heartless, but Napoleon knew his Paris. He must be alive and present. The Parisians only two days later learned that the Emperor was in their midst. He knew that the magic of his presence alone could comfort and inspire his people in this calamity. He had heard in Russia of the unpopularity of the war, even when that war presented no reverses, and recently he had learned how toward the close of October General de Malay had spread a false report of the Emperor's death and had attempted to accomplish a royalist coup d'etat. The thing had failed, Malay had been shot, and here was the Emperor, bringing bad news, it is true, but full of prestige and resource. Universal as was the desire for peace, Napoleon had but to appear in order to carry the day. In the course of four months, he raised an army of 226,000 men and 457 guns and hurried at their head to Germany, to Germany where Prussia had already joined his enemies, where a new disaster might lose him the support of the Confederation of the Rhine, where Austria herself seemed but a dubious friend. Toute l'Europe marche avec nous, il y a un an. Toute l'Europe marche aujourd'hui contre nous wrote Napoleon in a dispatch of this campaign, and he added that Europe always follows the lead of either France or England. But he did not despair of defeating his arch-enemy, though still the seat of war continued to contract. 
though the immense limits of the empire began to shrink and shrivel. The battle was at Moscow in 1812, at Dresden, at Leipzig in 1813. In 1814, the enemy was ravaging the fields of France. All the world was now in truth against Napoleon. At Leipzig, the Saxons and the Württembergers had ratted and joined the enemy in the middle of the fight. The Bavarians, who yesterday had fought in Napoleon's cohorts, attempted to stop his retreat and to bar the passage of the Rhine. France was invaded, north, south, and east, by more than 700,000 men, eager to avenge the defeats and disasters which all the nations of Europe save England had suffered at her hands. From Frankfurt in November 1813, the Allies sent an envoy to Paris, offering to treat, if Napoleon would accept as a basis the natural frontiers of France, the Rhine, the Alps, the Mediterranean, and the Pyrenees. This was all the revolution had ever claimed. This was all that in his youth he had gone out to win. The rest was over and above. But Napoleon could not dispense with that magnificent superfluity. He refused, and the nations pressed round him again in battle. Again his empire dwindled and tottered. Again they offered terms. This time the limits were narrower. He must renounce Belgium and Savoy. But even so, the France he could have kept was the old glorious France of the monarchy. Napoleon must have lost the balance of his reason when he refused to make peace. At last began that campaign of France which was as brilliant, as marvelous, as heroic, but not as successful as his first campaign in Italy. Wherever he fought, he triumphed, but wherever he was not, his generals were beaten. The army, in truth, was exhausted, worn out, and moreover, Napoleon, in the fifteen years of his fighting them, had taught his art to his enemies. The emperor himself was no longer what he had been. The very thin man had become a very fat one. His mental energy, still capable of lightning flashes and surprising darts, would sink sometimes into a sort of lethargy, a morbid and feverish activity alternating with a strange listlessness. He had become garrulous and discursive. In fact, his youth was past. He had said at Austerlitz to one of his generals, one has but a short time for war. I am good for another six years, and then I shall have to stop. He had spun the six years out to eight, but now he had to stop. As the armies of Europe marched on Paris, Napoleon decided to fight his last battle under the walls of the capital, but before he could bring up his forces, Paris had capitulated to the Tsar. In Paris, Alexander met his old friend, Talleyrand. While Napoleon, at Fontainebleau, was sending a message of surrender to the Allies, the minister he had disgraced was negotiating the future of France with the sovereigns of Europe. In his hotel of the Rue Saint-Florentin, he treated with the enemy as great power with great power, recommending the return of the Bourbons to the exclusion of Napoleon and all the persons of his family. The ex-emperor had hoped for a regency in the eventual succession of his infant son. But as marshal after marshal forsook the hopeless cause, that last hope had to be abandoned. The little king of Rome dethroned, proclaimed merely Prince of Parma and Duke of Reichstadt, 
was to receive his education at the court of his grandfather as became an austrian prince maria louisa was to return with her little boy to vienna napoleon himself was to receive the empire of elba a small island off the coast of tuscany between Ligorne and corsica one after another the bonapartes vanished from the scenes of affairs richly pensioned off in their golden obscurity on the fourth of april napoleon's marshals ney oudinot lefebvre macdonald forced him to accept these terms of peace on the sixth he signed the act of abdication and the senate proclaimed the reign of louis the eighteenth in his despair napoleon attempted to poison himself at least that old legend once discredited is again accepted by recent historians and surely some warrant is given to it by a phrase in the adieu of fontainebleau and also in that line of the act of abdication where the ex-emperor declares himself prêt à quitter la france et même la vie pour le bien de la patrie but napoleon had not yet run his course a wonderful a miraculous adventure was still in front of him life seemed over but the future had its secret to impart meanwhile after a long spell of dreary waiting in his dull deserted palace on the twentieth of april at fontainebleau he bade farewell to his soldiers of the old guard all was not lost while you fought by my side but the war would have gone on for ever would have degenerated into a civil war and france would have lost her prosperity i have sacrificed my interests to those of the country i am going away and you my friends will go on serving france the happiness of france is all i think of the one desire of my heart do not pity me if i have consented to survive it is to serve your fame i mean to chronicle the great exploits we have achieved together adieu farewell my children my comrades farewell forget me not and so napoleon set out for elba an island some two hundred kilometres square containing two little towns and seven villages the modern charlemagne was emperor of this principality en toute souveraineté and the treaty of fontainebleau guaranteed him an income of two millions of francs eighty thousand pounds never paid he has wished us adieu we may wish him au revoir End of section thirty eight